Hello, everybody. It is October 24th, 2022, and if you're with me today, it's to talk about New Jersey workers' compensation and expert witnesses in particular. All right, we're going to talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, although I do say that every single week, that everything's my favorite subject. Today, we're going to talk about IMEs and medical experts in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. And my goal is to sort of explain to you uh, how we utilize experts in general, how the courts view experts, when we use them, what I'm looking for when I'm hiring or selecting or recommending an expert, um, how we position them, um, how we prepare them, how we maximize the impact of the expert that we're selecting for a given case. Uh, and then I'm going to try to uh, give as much practical advice as I possibly can about this interesting subject. Um, this is totally live, as you could tell from this morning's or this afternoon's uh, little bit of a technical uh, issue with GoToMeeting. Um, so please ask me questions. It makes it a lot more fun if you ask questions, and um, hopefully I'll be able to answer your question. Uh, there is a question box. You can type your question into it, and I will answer as many questions as possible in the time we have. I will only say your first name. I will then read the question so that the whole audience has the benefit of the question, uh, and then I will do my best to answer it. So please go ahead and ask questions if you've got them. All right, <clears throat> let's talk first about a New Jersey workers' compensation case, and let's a little talk about just the sequencing of a workers' compensation case. You know, in other jurisdictions that we practice in, for example, New York, we're getting IMEs all the time. We're getting independent medical experts at different times throughout the case, and that's because we're not in medical control in a New York workers' compensation case. But in New Jersey, you are in control. And so typically, we're really not relying on independent medical experts through the life of the case to control and direct medical care because we're able to call up the treating physician or the carrier or employers able to call up the treating physician, ask questions, uh, authorize specific treatments, deauthorize other treatments. You really have a great deal of control in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. So you don't really use IMEs to direct and control the flow of medical care. Uh, but you do use IMEs, and, I'm, and again, I'm talking about case sequencing now, typically after the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement, and the remaining issue is the nature and extent of any permanent residual disability. So we're relying on medical experts for the purpose of determining the person's, um, really the award they're going to receive at the end of their case, whether that's for a scheduled loss of use or for a permanent partial total disability award. Remember that in New Jersey, all awards are for impairment alone uh, and have no um, consideration as to the person's actual working ability. So that's why the medical examiner is such an important part of our case. When the entire award is going to be based on how much medical treatment the person received, how, many, how invasive that treatment, how curative it was, whether they had surgery or not, and then what the medical experts have a uh, as opinion as to the permanent residual disability, well, it's really important that you have the right evaluator. Now, the petitioner, the claimant, is going to get their own medical evaluation done. And believe me, they are selecting physicians that are going to find a higher degree of disability than our physicians are going to find. So when do we get IMEs in New York? Well, first you get it when you're directed by the court, although that is exceedingly rare. Uh, we do see the court directing us to get um, independent medical examinations or do a need for treatment examination in the circumstance where a motion for med intent, for example, might be filed and we need contradictory or conflicting medical. But it is, again, rare to, to be actually directed by the court from the respondent's perspective. 
from the petitioner's uh, perspective, uh, generally speaking, sometimes the judge will say, hey, uh, counsel, it's time for you to get your exam, um, or that will be a reason the case is adjourned or continued. Uh, the second time is uh, when the petitioner has already gone and gotten their permanency evaluation. Now, the court rules say that we can wait six months from the petitioner reaching maximum medical improvement before we go and get our uh, examination. And that's really useful because that gives us six months to allow for the natural healing process to sort of inure to our benefit, which is good and useful for us. Um, however, uh, sometimes we want to get the case moving more quickly. And so our decision is, hey, it's a minor case. It's a relatively straightforward matter. Let's not wait that six months. Let's go get that IME now. And you certainly are free to do it. It is not prohibited to get your IME as soon as you've reached maximum medical improvement. The delay in exchanging reports, so the delay in reaching permanency is usually because the claimant or the petitioner is having uh, either a difficult time or, wait, or waiting a significant period of time to schedule their own independent medical expert. I know right now in the state of New Jersey, uh, there are not that many doctors doing plaintiffs, claimants, or petitioners IMEs. And so for that reason, when they're scheduling these reports out, they might be scheduling three months from now and then they have to wait a month after that to get their report. So that's a lengthy amount of time that really delays things. All right, other times. Um, when there's an issue as to uh, is the claimant reaching maximum medical improvement, you know, sometimes our treating physician is not uh, releasing the claimant or is saying that they haven't reached maximum medical improvement. And so very rarely we will use an IME to do that or to address a medical or temporary disability issue, typically those that would be raised by way of a motion. More common uh, would be a case where the petitioner has reached MMI and now is trying to bring in new body parts or claiming consequential injury. Uh, we also get independent medical evaluations to challenge the need or the causal relationship of the alleged injury to the, uh, to the workplace accident. You know, sometimes a new case will come in and it, we're not quite certain what body parts are accepted or gonna be accepted or if any of it's gonna be accepted. I had a case uh, in which the petitioner alleges that they got injured at work pushing a door. It was such a minor injury, it was like, should we even send them to authorized care or should we just send them to an IME who's going to say there's probably no causal relationship to whatever degenerative changes they have in their shoulder to that mere touch on the door. Uh, so that's uh, something to be thoughtful of. By far and away, the most common reason, though, we're getting an independent medical evaluation in New Jersey is because it's, there's an issue of permanent residual disability. And we're going to uh, need an expert's opinion as to the amount of the award that the petitioner would be due. Again, remember, those awards are based purely on medical impairment and medical findings. The doctor is not supposed to take into consideration things like the vocational ability, um, the transferability of skills, or their actual wage loss of the petitioner when they are setting the person's um, permanency rating. So for that reason, these are incredibly important documents and pieces of data in our workers' compensation case. What do I look for in an independent evaluator? And remember, I'm a defense litigator, okay? So what I'm thinking about when I'm uh, selecting or recommending an independent evaluator for my clients is I want someone who's a, credible, and B, who's going to stand up to cross-examination should we need to proceed to trial. 
who's that going to be? It's going to be someone with great qualifications. You know, I'm looking for someone who is board certified, uh, who has experience in the treating and caring for people with the exact type of injury, which is the basis of the workers' compensation claim. You know, generally speaking, we want to see board certified orthopedic surgeons. Uh, who have specific experience doing the types of uh, surgeries and treatments that the petitioner experienced in this workers' compensation case. I want board-certified neurologists. I want board-certified psychiatrists. That's who I'm looking for. Do my adversaries uh, select IME physicians who have that kind of qualifications? Generally not. Generally not, and they will hold themselves out sometimes as a general surgeon or as a, uh, you know, a, a generalist or it's just as a surgeon and with no actual board certifications or special fellowship training or other qualifications. Uh, next, I'm looking for uh, someone to do a competent physical examination, right? This is an opportunity to do the physical examination in person to put the uh, petitioner you know, up on the doctor's table to really test how they can uh, move about, test their range of motion, see what their strength is. You know, We should be using things like dynamometers, like grip strength dynamometers. We should be using things like coinometers to measure um, you know, their range of motions. That's what I really want to see. And I also want to see some distraction testing, You know, some of the classic straight leg raising tests, tests for Waddell signs, you know, the classic credibility tests that we should be seeing. I also want our independent medical evaluator to uh, go through a questionnaire with the claimant. Typically, this will be done by the claimant themselves. They'll fill out a questionnaire in the doctor's office and turn it in. More and more of my adversaries are telling their clients to not complete questionnaires when they go to the doctor, and we're fighting over that, and by the way, winning over that. Um, but we do want to see them asking the relevant social history and current complaints from the petitioner when they go to the independent medical evaluator. What I'm looking for in the report from my evaluator is something clear, okay? Uh, we have to think about the audience here, and I want something written essentially at a seventh grade re reading level with not a ton of jargon and something that's straightforward that A, I'm not gonna get confused about it, and B, when I present it to the court, my opposing counsel and the judge of compensation are gonna be able to read this report and make sense of it. I'm not looking for the longest report, the one with the most Latin phrases or medical terms in it. I'm really looking for a report that says, here's what the person's um, complaints were, here's what my physical examination demonstrated, uh, here's what I objectively found, here's my diagnosis, and here's my opinion as regards to permanent residual disability, if any. Right? I want it to be very straight. And then when the doctor testifies, I'm going to be putting them on the stand, I want someone who testifies clearly. That means I understand them, they speak English well, they're able to understand questions that are posed to them. Um, they're used to testifying, and uh, when they are testifying, they stay within their report, okay? They don't start responding to speculative or hypothetical questions. That's where we really get in trouble with our independent evaluators. When our opposing counsel starts posing questions to them in the alternative, or assuming facts on an evidence, or in the hypothetical, and they start asking things like, hey doctor, you examined him on May 10th, isn't that true? Yes, I did. And on that day, you said he had a 15 degree loss of range of motion and had moderate pain, uh, but had the ability to do uh, medium level work. Isn't that true, doctor? Yes, that's, those are the things I said. Well, if you had known that, after going to your evaluation, the next day he was in so much pain from the evaluation, he couldn't even walk down the street. Would that change your opinion in regards to disability? That's a big stop, right? Objection. Uh, that is 
speculative, that's hypothetical, okay? My doctor should not be supposed to answer that. Now, I'm gonna signal my doctor, right? So when my doctor's on the stand, I'm gonna say, objection, your honor, that calls for speculation. That departs from the four corners of their report. A good evaluator who's been seasoned and prepared for testimony will not answer that question. They'll stop, they'll say, well, your counsel, thanks for telling me that um, fact, but I didn't know that when I did my report. All I can testify to is what's in my report, right? So that's, we're really looking for someone who holds up in court. Uh, and holds up on cross-examination, right? And will follow my lead when I am throwing out my objections during cross-examination and not answer questions that they shouldn't be answering, particularly those dangerous, hypothetical, and speculative questions. All right, what can we send to our evaluator in New Jersey? And the answer is pretty much anything. I think a cover letter is always table stakes. I like to write cover letters to my evaluators. I think they should be written by counsel. Frankly, they don't cost a lot of money. We have paraprofessionals generally draft them here. Uh, I think that's absolutely table stakes. I counsel all my clients, hey, you should have us write your cover letters. We're gonna do a good job. We're gonna make sure the doctor is given the information they need uh, to draw the best report for you and draw the right conclusions. Uh, next, I think they should get a questionnaire from the claimant when the claimant comes in. And really what we're looking for is social history and current complaints from the petitioner on the date of their actual evaluation. We can send any non-medical documents that we have access to, right? So this could be anything from the person's personnel file to a current job description to an accident description. It could also be things like covert surveillance that we've obtained uh, or non-covert surveillance. Perhaps the person's put themselves under surveillance by going on Instagram and, and posting pictures of them at parties on the weekends and every meal that they eat right? Uh, anything that they provide to us can be provided by, from us to the evaluator. Um, there are no limitations on how we can prepare our independent expert in New Jersey. And not only that, I can also prepare the evaluator when it's time for trial, right? So um, my uh, standard operating procedure is, hey, we're going to go to trial. Uh, your testimony is on November 15th. Doctor, you're gonna meet with me on November 14th, the day before trials, I wanna be fresh, and I wanna go through with them. Here's what's gonna happen at court. Here's the sequencing of the trial. Here's where your testimony comes in. Here are the objections you may hear from the sides. What happens when you hear these objections? I'm gonna really coach them through everything that can get thrown at them on the stand. Now, some of the experts I put on the stand have testified hundreds of times. They might have testified more than I've taken testimony. I mean, that's how um, seasoned some of these evaluators are. And they'll say, Greg, Greg, I know this stuff. I know this stuff. Okay, we've got to go through it again. I just want to remind you, here's the things I know about this court, this judge, this adversary. Here's the questions they're going to ask. Here's the things they're going to throw at you. We really do a full prep to make sure that they're ready to testify um, and really get the best sort of testimony that we can elicit from them. What about missed IMEs in New Jersey? This is so common. I mean, it just literally happened to me on one of my cases yesterday or last week. Uh, my adversary says, I'm sorry, she missed the IME. Uh, can you reschedule? Okay, so typically in New Jersey, if someone misses an IME appointment, yes, we will reschedule once. Once. Uh, don't reschedule twice, just once. If they miss that second reschedule, now we're going to court and I've got a motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution and now we've got grounds to section 20 of the case because they're just not showing up, okay? So you can do things about them. The second thing is if you miss an IME, I'm getting charged, my client's usually getting charged a $150 no-show fee. Well, I'm gonna charge that to my adversary and the way I'm gonna recoup that money is when we settle the case, I'm taking that money back and I'm actually gonna put on the form of order, 
$150 no-show fee will be reimbursed to the respondent because you failed to appear. So we'll get that money back. The last thing I want to say about missed IMEs or missed medical appointments in general is under Section 19 of the Workers' Compensation Law, if the petitioner refuses care or refuses to appear for an evaluation, that's grounds for you to suspend benefits. We don't use this that much because New Jersey is not a state where you tactically fight about medical that much, right? Because you're controlling and directing medical, so you shouldn't really be fighting about it or litigating this issue. But where someone's missing appointments or fails to attend to a paid evaluation, that's grounds for you to self-help and stop benefits. Terminate benefits at that moment. Believe me, once you stop the flow of money to them, they will appear at that rescheduled IME. All right, let's talk through a couple applications of utilizing an expert in New Jersey. And I really want to talk about the sort of the edge cases, not the normal ones, because these are cases where you're going to need to, A, get an expert, and B, sort of prepare them a little bit differently. So the first one I want to talk about is cardiac or cerebrovascular cases. The legal standard for a cardiac or cerebrovascular case where someone claims they got a, had a stroke or had a heart attack at work is that the petitioner has the burden of proof to show that they were doing something that was extraordinary, that the effort or exertion was beyond the normal level of exertion. Now, typically, the way we're going to establish or investigate that is through interrogatories. So I think if you're going to hire an expert in a cardiac or a cerebrovascular case, let's make sure that our expert gets the benefit of those interrogatories. What is the response? What did they claim they were doing? What's the, uh, the benefit of our investigation? Typically in a, in a cardiac case, we're going to hire either a vascular expert or a cardiac surgeon to give us our opinion, and they're going to need this information. The other thing I want to give them is a job description. What is like the typical day for this person? Uh, was it the day of this accident or, or cerebrovascular incident really extraordinary? Was there extra exertion? And even things as basic as a weather report are important in these kinds of cases. You know, if we're able to say, hey, like, hey, it wasn't a hot day. You weren't doing extra exertion. You just had a stroke. You could have had the stroke anywhere. And, you know, uh, every cerebrovascular expert I've seen has, you know, will generally tell you, like, a stroke could happen at any time. Now, these things are, you know, some people just get them. Um, this is valuable information for them. Um, of course, we're going to be also trying to provide them with a step-by-step -step onset of the, of the symptoms, particularly in the cardiac, uh, cardiac cases. The heart attack cases typically will start hours, sometimes even days, before the actual ischemic event, which leads the person to seek emergency care. You know, the heart attack happens on a Tuesday, but they don't actually seek care until Wednesday or Thursday when the pain increases. So really, uh, going through this step-by-step -step onset can help us isolate the time period that we're really looking at. Let's talk about another case, psychiatric cases. Again, these are edge cases, these are atypical cases. But in psychiatric cases, remember, the legal standard is the claimant has to show that there was something peculiar and extraordinary about the workplace exposure uh, to some stimulus that led to the psychiatric condition. And there's case law that says, you know, just having a mean boss or getting yelled at at work, uh, that's normal to every job. So just a little bit of, uh, on, you know, discomfort or getting a negative review at work. None of those things are, give rise to a psychiatric claim. It has to be something extraordinary or unique. So again, we're going to look to what are the relevant discovery responses? What do the interrogatory answers say? Um, what is the, um, you know, 
any accounts we have, or information from the location about, hey, this is the stress this person was exposed to on this day, uh, and this is how they reacted in the workplace. And of course, we're going to look into specific work conditions that the person alleges led to their mental condition. You know, certainly there are circumstances the person's been subject to harassment or discrimination or sexual harassment or an assault. And we could clearly see those things are peculiar, extraordinary, beyond what the normal person should be and is exposed to at work. And we could see those things can, you know, give meet the standard and create the psychiatric illness or injury. That's possible. But in many cases, the person's psychiatric stimuli just isn't enough to meet the standard under the case law and the statute. And so for that reason, you want to have make sure your expert understands that. What we've also discovered in most psychiatric cases is a lengthy pre-existing history. I've got a psychiatric case that I'm defending now uh, where the person's claiming that they developed anxiety from work. That's interesting. We've also learned that they've been taking medicinal marijuana for various things for many, many years. Uh, and it's strange, but medicinal marijuana also, one of its side effects is creating paranoia and anxiety. So, you know, you've got to look into the person's pre-existing history. What other conditions are they been treated for in the past? What medications are they on? All that stuff comes into play and should be thought about in a psychiatric case. Last uh, application I'm going to talk about is reopener cases. Uh, roughly one in five cases in the New Jersey workers' compensation system are reopeners, meaning they were closed. They were settled, they were resolved, and then the person, within two years of receiving their last payment of compensation under Section 27 of the statute, said, hey, my condition has materially worsened and you owe me more money. And they filed a reopener claim. Okay, the legal standard for this is the petitioner has the burden to show that there is a material worsening in their condition. And of course, we're going to serve them discovery, typically interrogatories, and ask them to prove their case, right? The burden's on them, you've got to prove your case. The other thing that we should be obtaining and providing to our expert is the transcript of the prior hearings in workers' compensation court where the claimant testified. Because remember, in every settled case in New Jersey, the claimant either has to swear an affidavit or come into court and give all their current complaints and talk about how disabled they are. Well, get that information because now they're saying they're worse than that. And what we've discovered is by obtaining an excellent record at the time of the final settlement, really making the petitioner flesh out what all their concerns are and all their limitations, that helps us protect against that reopener claim. And that's valuable information to provide to your medical expert. Of course, we're going to provide them any prior medical records and request them to only comparatively analyze, analyze the person to where they were the last time they were analyzed by an expert. In other words, I'm not saying give me your opinion in a vacuum, expert. I'm saying give me your opinion and compare it to where they were the last time you or our previous defense medical examiner evaluated them and tell me if there's a difference. That's the only thing we're really looking for from them. I'm not interested in them doing a sort of a fresh analysis or giving me their, their raw opinion. I want them to absolutely have the benefit of all the information from the prior claim, which now forms the basis for this reopener, so that they are able to move forward and give us the best possible report. All right, you've been with me through all of this. We had some technical difficulties in the beginning, but we're all together now. Let me come over here to the question panel. It's time to answer questions. So I hope people have, have given me a couple questions in here. It makes this so much more fun. All right, Mirage says, Greg, happy Diwali. 
And I'm trying to see if I have any other questions. Happy Diwali Mirage. That's it. I don't see any other questions or comments. If anybody has anything for me though, and I didn't get to it, or you didn't type in fast enough, that's okay. Feel free to email me or call me. All right. Thanks everybody for joining us. I hope to see you all next month. Uh, we're going to be talking about defending occupational exposure claims on November 21st. Have a great week, everybody. See you next time. Bye.